0: As we hear the word proclaimed this morning, listen for God's special word to you. Let us pray. Lord God, may your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path Through Jesus Christ our word. Amen. Our Old Testament passage comes to us from the book of Job, chapter 38, verses 1-11. There the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I request you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, if you understand. Off its dimensions, surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together? And all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. This is the word of the Lord. Comes to us from the book of Mark. Reading uh, verses 40 35 to 41. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown?" He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet! Be still! Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified, and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. We like answers. Answers make us feel in control. When someone answers a question, it is as if they're saying, I know about this because I care about it. Answering a question makes someone an automatic leader of sorts. If nothing else, it puts the answerer, a rung or two above the questioner. Questions are often seen as weak, especially in the church. They're a confession of sorts. They are a confession that we don't have all the answers. Asking a question is tantamount to saying, I don't know all there is to know about the things that matter to me. Questions, or rather the question askers, are misunderstood. We tend to assume that if we have questions, we don't have enough faith or our faith isn't complete, or it's baby faith. The ones asking are seen as having less faith than the ones answering. As a church, we want answers, not questions. When we are trying to figure out where we fit in as the world changes around us, and when we're trying to sort out how to survive and continue to share God's good news in in, in an increasingly divisive and hostile culture, We don't want someone to come in and ask us questions about our faith and our motives. We want someone to come in and give us the answers, a neat little list of the things to do that will fix the chaos. We want a 10-step plan to returning things to how they were before this all happened. But this is dangerous. This is even sinful thinking because we see questions all over scripture. Both of our passages today are full of questions. Scripture tells us time and time again to be humble and to always seek after God. Admit you don't know everything and continue the search. Always be suspicious of easy answers to complicated problems. One of Scripture's most well-known or perhaps most notorious question askers is Job. Job was a faithful man who had a good relationship with God until terrible things started happening to him. His livestock all died. His servants all died. His children all died. And through these things, Job held on to his unwavering faith. But then he got sick. And he still didn't curse God. He didn't entirely turn away like his wife suggested. But he did get mad, and he got sad, and he got all the completely appropriate and human emotions that someone would get when everything and everyone they love is being taken away. In Job 3.3, Job curses the very day he was born. Enter Job's friends. Don't have friends like Job's friends, my dear ones. These guys have all the answers for Job's questions about why. They have all the solutions for fixing the things that are wrong with Job's life. Eliphaz, friend one, tells Job that he must have some sort of unresolved sin in his life that he has simply missed. In 4.7 of Job, Eliphaz says, remember Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? In other words, Eliphaz says bad things don't happen to good people. He tells him to stop asking these questions and just repent more. He's even so bold to say, if I were you, I would seek God better because God is really awesome and you're clearly missing the point. Thanks for trying, Eliphaz, but that's not particularly helpful in this situation, buddy. So, Job, as the best of us would, tells off Eliphaz. And I can't blame him. But then Job's friend, Zophar, friend two, comes in and tells Job he's such a hot mess, he should be lucky he got off so easy. Again, not helpful. And again, Job tells off his so-called friend for being pretty rotten company and being a know-it-all. Eliphaz chimes in again that Job's faith isn't strong, he should trust God more, so Job tells off Eliphaz again. Then a third friend named Bildad pops in and says, this is all just punishment. So Job tells off Bildad. Zophar tries to get in another jab by saying, bad people suffer, you must be bad. So Job reminds him that there are plenty of terrible people in the world who are doing quite well for themselves. Explain that one, please. And this goes on and on and on ad nauseum for more than 30 chapters until finally God cuts in with the passage that we just read. Interestingly, God does not cut in with an answer. God comes in with a question. Where were you when I made all of this? In Job 38, God asks Job and Job's friends, who is this that's talking without having the first clue what they're talking about? Who died and made them God? Where were you when I put all of this together? God's questions are more rhetorical. They're, a, they're asked to get Job and his misinformed buddies thinking. That's what questions do. They encourage thinking, whereas answers tend to shut it down. Job and his friends didn't need any more rote answers. As we see, Job's friends had plenty of answers. What they needed was to see that things were far bigger than they had assumed. Our gospel passage this morning is full of questions. There are four questions in this very short little passage from Mark. The first one, the disciples ask, it's a very pragmatic but fear-filled question. Don't you care that we're about to die? If you think about it, this question from the disciples is pretty bold. And it's a great deal like Job's lament about wishing he had never been born. God, why did you even bother making me? The disciples aren't willing to completely curse Jesus in this moment, but they are happy to accuse Jesus of not caring enough about them. They, like Job, forget that it's not God who has to answer to us. It is we who have to answer to God. After all, where were we when God created the earth? Jesus is right there in the boat with them. Jesus, God in the flesh. Jesus, God in just as much physical danger from the storm as they were. Jesus, God in the flesh and ruler of all chaos, creator of the very sea they rocked on. So Jesus asks the disciples a question in return, as Jesus does constantly throughout the Gospels. Jesus calms the raging storm around them and then asks. And this, this one, like the questions God asks in Job, is primarily a question to get them thinking. He asks Why are you so afraid? What are you scared of? In Hebrew mythology, the sea represented chaos. The things we can't control, the things we feel like we can't control. When we feel out of control, we blow things out of proportion and we let fear rule our hearts. And so in the midst of this chaotic Storm, the disciples feel out of control and fearful. And yes, the sea represents chaos, but in Job, God lays out very clearly that God is the master of the sea, of chaos, of everything around us. God puts boundaries even on the waters. And in Mark, Jesus binds that chaos of the water that they are sailing on. When we see chaos around us and we feel helpless and scared, the first question we must ask is why? Why am I so afraid? Because fear comes from a place of discomfort over not having all the answers. Sure we might not understand all the things that are happening in the world around us, but are we the masters of it all? Are we the ones who can calm the wind and the sea? Where were you when God created it all? Jesus asks a second rhetorical question before the disciples have a chance to answer or even begin to process the first one. Jesus asks, Do you still not have any faith? Jesus was asleep when the storm came. He didn't let the fear and the chaos of the storm rule his heart. He was asleep because he trusts in God. And it's not just God's individual plan for him specifically that Jesus trusted in that vote, because this is never about your one individual personal situation. Yes, you matter to God greatly, but you are also not the center of the universe. I love you, but that's true. Even Jesus knew it was about something so much greater than himself. Jesus isn't accusing the disciples of having too little faith in the health and wealth, name it and claim it, just faith-harder way that Eliphaz did to Job. He's reminding them that faith, real faith, is so much bigger than their own individual day-to-day circumstances. Sometimes this is about playing the long game instead of worrying about everything being neat and tidy and calm right now because after all where were we when the earth was created finally the disciples start to catch on and so they ask one another who is this that even the wind and the sea obey it's like a light bulb goes off in their heads it's a dim light bulb as is often the case for the poor disciples. But it's on. The light bulb has turned on, and they are both in awe of and a little unsettled by Jesus, the one who calms the waves and answers their questions with more questions. People who are not afraid in a storm can be a little intimidating or unsettling. And perhaps that's part of what makes it so hard to trust God when things go a little wacky all around us. We're suspicious of those who rise above the chaos. It's unusual to not fear anything. That's what makes Jesus, what makes following Jesus such a radical move. One of my commentaries put it this way jesus reaffirmed his faith by being obedient to god even to death have you found a just cause that overshadows death for you i also love that the commentary ends that section by asking a question have you found a just cause that overshadows death for you I think we can ask ourselves that as a congregation. It's scary to be a small church today. We fear the unknown and the possibility that this church might not be here in 10 or 20 years. But where were we when God created this world? Shoot, where were we when God created this particular congregation? It's been around for over 150 years. And I'm pretty sure none of you were here when that happened. If you were well done, we need to have one heck of a birthday party for you this year. But who are we to say that we know what God has in store? How dare we question God's love for us over a little storm? Jesus is right here in the boat with us, just as invested, if not more, probably more. We as the church, and I mean Big C Church this time, the church as a whole, need to stop questioning, we um, need to stop trying to answer all of the questions, and we need to stop fearing. We need to embrace what's happening around us and remember that God is the one who bounds and calms even the chaos of the sea. God is the one who created everything out of nothing. We need to find a just cause that overshadows the fear of death. One that reminds us that this is all so much bigger than we are. What might be that cause for this congregation? The one that we could just throw ourselves so fully into that our fear for the future is gone, is irrelevant, doesn't matter anymore. So it is appropriate that I should end this morning's sermon with a question. I will leave you with this. Where is God, the God who created this all, working in the chaos around you?